Hello, everyone, and welcome to In This Economy, the podcast where young people from Zimbabwe and around the world discuss how they are navigating life in the current economic circumstances. With me, your host, Kim Nyajega. So as promised, this week we have double episodes. If you haven't already done so, please do check out the very first full-length solo episode in the history of this podcast. What started off as me recording a mini turned into a full like venting session, rant session. Um, and that was the, that was the episode, even after trying to edit it down, it was just a full length solo episode. So if you do enjoy that format, um, if you do like listening to the internal monologues that happen in my mind all the time, uh, do let me know. I enjoyed recording it. So let me know if you enjoy listening to it. Um, yeah. So yeah, this episode, um, the second episode for the week, we are discussing an issue that remains relevant and topical. If you live in a country where conservatism has a stronghold, and that is accessing reproductive health care services, accessing reproductive health care in this economy. Um, My guest and I discuss how factors of not only our economy, but of our society, of our culture, impact the way we access reproductive healthcare services in Zimbabwe and I guess around the world. Um, even the, especially for the services that are legal and readily available, it's not just um, the services not being there that stops us from utilizing them, but it's also the things that we've been socialized to believe, the conversations that we have, you know, behind closed doors or don't have at all, that really do impact the way we view and use these services so i do hope you enjoy um as always i would love to hear what you think and if you're comfortable sharing what your experiences have been um, i do love your engagement so please do not forget to follow the podcast on social media at in this economy podcast on instagram and follow me your host at kimya jeff on twitter and let's keep the conversation going so i guess without further ado let's get straight into the episode All right, so in today's episode, we are discussing reproductive health in this economy with my wonderful guest, Dr. Chido. Dr. Chido, welcome. Thank you for having me, Kim. Thank you for making the time. Would you mind introducing yourself for the people before we get started? I am Chido Zwachikwari. I'm an epidemiologist. I'm based in Zimbabwe, but I also work for the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. I do research that focuses primarily on HIV and um, STIs, as well as sexual reproductive health, which is sort of all-encompassing for young people and adolescents. I'm so excited to be able to share this with you. And I thought it'd be interesting because the HIV AIDS epidemic is something that's been um, very close to me and my family personally um, since I can remember, and um, just understanding how this the disease and reproductive health overall is framed within our families, I thought it'd be interesting to discuss how, as young people, some of the more negative aspects of discussing reproductive health influence us today, despite all the conversations that happen online, despite how much it's encouraged, just exploring how it's impacting us 
in the current economic circumstances and just exploring how we can challenge those and um, reframe the narrative. So thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, me too. So my first question is, what are some of the most dangerous cultural myths or folktales that have negatively influenced people's understanding of reproductive health in Zimbabwe? And if there are any in other parts of Africa that you know of? Uh, That's a really interesting question. I think, yeah, I'll just start with sort of three that have come to mind um, as we're talking. So like I mentioned, I do a lot of HIV research. And when it comes to HIV, I think it's something that, you know, killed a lot of people um, right at the start of the pandemic. And then a lot of sort of beliefs popped up. Um, They might, I don't know if you could call them, you know, cultural beliefs and stuff, but, you know, there's stuff that um, I think even to date you'll hear people speak about, like, if you have sex with a virgin, um, that will cure your HIV. I mean, that's dangerous because um, if you're having sex with a virgin, likely it's not consensual sex, so it's rape, but also you're HIV positive and likely you're going to transmit the virus to that person. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll talk of stuff that's more widespread within um, you know, the African context. Context is not necessarily just Zimbabwe, but um, when it comes to young people, there's a lot of like cultural rites of passage that are, you know, heavily linked with sexual and reproductive health. They often practice when somebody begins, um, you know, puberty and they, you know, for girls, it's when they start um, receiving their menstrual periods. And a lot of these are tied to sex and sexuality. Some of them can be quite harmful. So FGM is, is one example of a cultural practice that is ongoing um, for the beliefs that people have you know, in their cultures. Another one, um, which is really interesting, but it's kind of almost like, I don't know what the correct term to use is circumcision. So culturally, you know, we practice circumcision as an initiation to manhood. Um, and it's it's got all the cultural um, stuff associated with it. But also from a public health perspective, that's one thing that is, um, has been shown to be beneficial. So if you circumcise, the risk of transmitting HIV reduces by 60%, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. So for that example, culture is not you know, 100% bad. And then the other is just um, things to do with birth practices. So there's a lot of cultural myths or, or folktales, like you say, that influence you know, what people think about childbirth. Um, experiencing childbirth, I'll give an example of something that's practiced quite commonly in, in, in our sitting in Zimbabwe is, you know, if you're about to give birth, you um, are supposed to, is it, I, I'm not sure if it's eat the, the dung of elephants or it's the urine, something crazy like that. But people believe that it makes it easier to deliver. But one of the risks um, associated with that is also excessive bleeding during childbirth. So this is just three examples that I've given, um, but I've also tried to create a balance and show that, you know, while there are some very harmful cultural practices, some of them um, have been shown to have good scientific basis to improve health. Um, and all of them are linked to sexual and reproductive health. No, thank you for sharing those. That's really interesting. I'd never heard the third one before. Um, I always just, well, with the stories I've heard, it's definitely more directed towards chastity and maintaining your virginity as a young girl and one of the Mm -hmm. things that personally has made me very shy to talk about it even now just unlearning that is the shame around you know when you start menstruating when you start your period 
I was I grew up, you know, being told that no one should ever know. So it was kind of like this open secret and going to all girls schools. It was kind of like, oh, okay. I would have like extra shame attached to, you know, when you stain your skirt or all of those sort of things. And it just makes you kind of stray away from having really important discussions, especially in adulthood. Um, you'll find when you go to your doctor or their free screenings, you're not completely honest with what's going on, yeah. which has proved particularly dangerous in the African context as well, considering the way STI spread and, and of course the HIV AIDS ap- epidemic. I think some of the things that were taught aren't really helpful to curbing disease. Like you could have access to all the medication but if you yourself are feeling kind of shameful about something yeah. that's completely natural in a human in like the human experience it does make it quite difficult absolutely so um like i, I work with young people and you know some of the barriers that young people face when it comes to accessing treatment for stis for example is it's really difficult for you to one as a young person in our setting open up that i'm sexually active and unmarried and then also the fact that i now have this sti so a lot of young people actually stay with the symptoms that they have for um you know a very long time and then present when they're really really advanced and i think it's that 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 shame that you're talking about that the stigma that's associated with you know you're having sex outside of marriage that restricts people from accessing services that may be available. It's not all the time that these services are available. I think that's one thing to keep in mind. Um, but even when they're available, you know, they might not be in a safe space, which is, again, coming back to the social and cultural barriers that, you know, we face when it comes to sexual and reproductive health. Yeah, that's very true. So I think that segues really nicely into my next question, which would be, in your view and your experience, what would be the most effective way to challenge the stigma and shame that's attached to discussing reproductive health matters? So I think, you know, the work that I've done, particularly with young people, and I think I think that's where it starts, right? We are the next generation of, you know, elders and also our children, other people that we're raising to come after us. I think one of the most effective ways is to to, to start to be open about it. And I think we are starting to be open about it. I do a lot of, you know, workshops um, in different communities, be it rural or urban communities. And these workshops I do with like healthcare workers or just young people living in the communities and their caregivers. And I think starting the dialogue is one of the ways that we can start to break that shame and break that stigma. And, and, and one thing I've noticed that it's a process. There's no magic wand. Some of these things are deeply rooted. You know, you started the first question by asking about culture and culture is something that's deeply rooted. We're not going to change it in one day, but it's that dialogue. Um, it's that awareness. Like you said, that when, you know, when you go to an old girl's school and you realize, oh, this is happening to everybody. Talking about it creates an awareness and that awareness starts to break down the shame. I think we're slowly making headway. I'm certainly different from my mother mm-hmm. um, and the way that she viewed things. And, and in raising my son, I can see that he's also definitely different from me because he challenges things um, quite openly in ways that I would not when I was a child. So I think it's, it's a gradual thing, but you, we also have to be conscious about it. Sometimes we also propel the stigma. Um, and it's that introspection to say, okay, is this, you know, something that, you know, that that hiding your period, like you're saying, is it, you know, the fact that I'm not talking about my period with my boyfriend or my now husband, 
because of that stigma and how do I move away from that on, on a personal level? No, definitely. And I think I, it really does start, I hate to sound really cliche, but it does begin with you. And I think it's such mm-hmm. a process to really start challenging some of your beliefs or why you um, sugarcoat or find euphemisms to talk about like pretty natural processes or everyday things. Um, and I think that's definitely something that's culturally ingrained. But I do like what you've said about just speaking up um, and just challenging it in your everyday life and questioning why you're hiding certain aspects and why that's um, stopping you from being completely open and completely honest about what you might be experiencing with your reproductive health specifically. And I think that really like tumbles into other aspects of your life and your health in general. Um, and maybe there are symptoms you might not know were a part of a certain disease that it may not actually be a reproductive issue. It could just be something in your body that's wrong. But if you are so scared of talking about it, um, you might end up harming yourself in the long run where I spoke, um, we spoke in the last episode I did about healthcare, about how prevention is better than a cure. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I do think um, being more open and speaking up about these things and I guess holding each other accountable are really important aspects to like getting rid of the shame and destigmatizing things. I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And in, in your experience, what has been the most effective form of advocacy for improved as- access to reproductive health care? Um, and I mean this in the sense of there's so many different kind of campaigns. Some are more subtle in their messages, some are more explicit some um sort of piggyback off of one movement or any of those things but from your studies your work experience hands-on everything that you've done what is the most effective form of advocacy so i like what you said the first part to say in my experience um so like i mentioned before i'm an epidemiologist i'm a researcher and i think one of the most powerful tools that we have is data and 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 i think once you have the data, it's very easy to to become an advocate. So um, a lot of the work that I do has been, you know, in producing data to show, for example, the high prevalence of sexually transmitted infections among young people. You know, I've also done work on trying to understand, you know, young people's experiences when it comes to abortion in um, communities like Mbare. And what you find from that data is that this is, you know, real. And often, you know, when when we speak to policymakers who are the ones who are responsible for improving access, they kind of shut us down and like, you know, kind of say that that's not happening. Mm-hmm. But when you present them with data, um, yeah. you know, data that's robust data collected over time with large sample size. The study that I'm currently working on is recruiting over 17,000 young people and we're asking questions about their sexual and reproductive health. And at the end of the study, you know, we can come back, we're testing them for STIs and we can come back and say, you know, we actually found a 20% prevalence of um, sexually transmitted infections among young people in Zimbabwe. There is a problem, we need to address it. And I think for me, that has been the most effective tool. Work that I've done before has led to WHO guideline changes. And I think it's that, you know, being able to provide robust evidence um, to advocate for, for access. Yeah, I, I think it's possible. It's It's a slow wheel to turn, but it's definitely, definitely possible. Yeah, I love that response so much, data, because when I when I think about these things, I'm thinking campaigns, I'm thinking releasing just information, I'm thinking of finding like a very clever Trojan horse to coat 
the message in differently but actually just showing facts and figures is really does it really is what i guess makes sense to everybody regardless of who you are when you put numbers to 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 faces i think that's really effective because um a lot of messages that are deemed feminist messages which um reproductive health does fall under um as soon as it's a group of women coming to talk to people's policy changes i feel like sometimes especially in zimbabwe it comes off as kind of whiny or idealistic mm -hmm. or these women want to change our culture like yes we want to change culture but for the better and um i think we continue i think a lot of our cultural aspects continue to ignore the reality on the ground and i don't think there's anything more grounded in reality than numbers you know numbers really can't lie when you say that okay you would like to think that in your community kids are abstinent or youth are abstinent until they're married but if there's an actual statistic showing otherwise that definitely i imagine would translate better than trying to I don't know, just talk to people without presenting any actual facts. So I really enjoy that response. It's really different than what I expected, actually. I, I do think there is also space for advocacy, definitely. Mm -hmm. I think it's the two that go hand in hand. You know, like I mentioned, I'm, I'm stuck in the data a lot of the time. But I also do like to think of myself as an advocate in the sense that once you do have that data, advocacy does come in and make all of the noise. Most likely I'll write a paper that's put in a journal and very few people will read it, but it's those people that, you know, stand up and speak and say, you know what, there is the problem. And they can use the data that, you know, I've collected or that we've collected to back up, you know, all the noise, but there's definitely a space for advocacy. I remember attending an AIDS conference in Durban several years ago and you know, we are there to talk about science and we're there to talk about data. But from that conference, the most compelling thing that stood out for me was just before the keynote speech, sex workers um, stood up in the middle of this humongous auditorium in a silent demonstration for their rights. Hmm. And that is advocacy, right? That is not backed up by data. And, and a conference, it's a scientific conference, um, the whole idea yeah, is yeah. like science and data, but that was a really powerful form of advocacy. And there was no, I think, you know, it got the attention that it required. Um, every, the most important people that needed to be in the room were in the room. The most important people that needed to see how important or, or the, the people that this affected you know, actual, you know, sex workers standing up and saying, this is what we're going through. Can you see us? Can you do something about us? That was really powerful. So I think it works hand in hand. It's not one or the other, but it, it yeah, it, it can support each other and each has its time and its place. And if we, if we use all the tools in the box, we're more likely to improve health outcomes overall. Yes, no, definitely. I, I think the one definitely goes with the other. And um, I just had never looked at numbers in that in that sense. But I really do. The example you've actually shown is, I mean, the what you've explained is actually really powerful. Um, because I do think when people come together and stand up in that sense, it's everything working as one. Like you don't have to say anything. Mm -hmm. It's like a clear representation that we are all at the end of the day, just humans. And I think seeing other humans like representing something, it doesn't, it takes away the impersonalness that I think is attached to advocacy. It takes away from just any sort of ideals and makes it very real in addition to statistics um, and everything. I think it's grounding the reality of the situation. Like this is 
in our society, this is happening in our community. These are real issues, real epidemics, and we really need to address it um, in the most productive way possible, I think. That also goes into what I wanted to explore in this, um, in my next question, which is just overall the burden of reproductive health responsibilities falls disproportionately on women, whether it's taking care of fertility, contraceptions and also I guess limiting the spread of sexually transmitted disease I think the responsibility definitely is placed more so on women um, and once again from your experience is there a way we can better or really encourage um, the education of men in our societies so that they can be adequately concerned about their reproductive health as much as women I think from a young age were always concerned about whether it's fertility or our menstrual cycle or something, we're always just concerned about it from a very young age. Is there a way to adequately educate men for the same? Uh, so I actually laughed when I read this question because this is something that I ask myself, I think, twice a month. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, what do men want, right? Like, we, mm. we, we do have all of these um, interventions when it comes to HIV, um, all of these interventions when it comes to um, STI management, but men are just very difficult. And, and, I'm, and I mean this, like I love men. It's no offense to men out there, but they're very difficult when it comes to getting them to engage with health services. Um, and they're very difficult when it comes to getting them to engage with sexual and reproductive health services in particular. And to an extent, I do think it's part of, it's a consequence of the way our health services are structured. If you, for example, go to a primary healthcare facility, most likely what you are going to see is women. It's going to be women with the babies. The nurses are going to be women. The, the, um, the clerk is most likely going to be a woman. They're very, our health facilities are very female spaces, right? Um, and also when you when 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 we come to think about sexual reproductive health, like you rightly put, the burden is heavily placed on the woman, right? It's the woman who has to take contraception and and again, by design, it's the woman that's going to give birth. Um, and so I, I kind of understand where the men might be coming from. But to answer your question, I think us as or I'll speak for myself as healthcare providers, need to be intentional about engaging men. So that's one place to start. How do we engage men in ways that they understand, in ways that are, they appreciate, in what spaces? So a lot of the work that I do with young men is also that, like, how, what, what do they want? Where can we find them? How can we tailor our service to be more engaging to men? Um, there's things that interest them. So um, the, the project that I've recently been working on, um, Chiedza, is... You know, men like um, music uh, and men like sport. So if we can provide health services in a space that has music and sport, you know, men are more likely to engage in the services in that space. Um, if we couple information giving with that, with football, um, it's possible that men, you know, will come. Um, another group that has done this so well in South Africa is grassroots soccer. And so it's, you know, soccer, but the, 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 the whole idea behind grassroots soccer is actually HIV prevention and, and the entire HIV cascade. So I think one of the ways, you know, to, to educate men is to package the information in ways that they are more likely to access 
right? So that's where are they going to consume information? Mm. Um, and 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 I laugh because uh, my partner will like watches soccer like crazy, 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 right? Yeah. So it's that one time that he's completely engrossed and is like it's like you know there was that the final a few days ago and the phone was like gone until the game was over and I'm like okay how can we use this as a tool? Mm, yeah. <laughs> to, to message or to get them to be um it's very idealistic it's very you know far but i think this is something that can be adapted it, it doesn't have to be football but it can be where can we find men mm. um to educate them what ways do they consume information it can be something as basic as newspapers you know once upon a time we all used to read newspapers Paper, yeah um yeah. Yeah. And again, I think it comes back to that self-advocacy again as women. We know as women that we receive our, our menstrual cycle every month. If, you know, I would want my partner to be concerned about it, then maybe that's something that I should be talking about with my partner. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and to start off with, it might be very uncomfortable. But over time, it, it's 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 a wall that becomes broken. Um, similarly, the way that we raise our children, I'm a mom, um, I mentioned this already, but when it comes to my son, I remember growing up and, and, and my mom would say to me, you know, you're on your period and nobody's supposed to know that you're on your period. Like it's the biggest secret in the world. Like there shouldn't be a pad in sight, everything. But the way that I raise my son, maybe I I want him to be aware of this. Right. It's, and I, I think maybe my brother grew up in a world where he, didn't think that existed except in biology but is 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 there are there ways that i can raise my son differently so that he can be more concerned about his reproductive health and potentially his partner's reproductive health as well yeah no i completely agree i think um it's the way the information is packaged i think for women it's very easy because our culture just encourages us to be scared and kind of shameful so it's easy to really drum those messages where from a young age you're just seeing that the woman is the one held accountable for all of this i think for men it might be even just also going back to the issue of culture just having a cultural shift in the way we look at things and the way we discuss things and just really rejecting the norms of shame and secrecy around this so that maybe in addition to spreading the message in the most effective way possible, we, we can also shift the narrative and like you had rightly mentioned earlier, have more open conversations so that, you know, the burden is shifted or can be carried equally between anyone who wants to, you know, anyone who's interested in engaging in sexual reproduction and activities and also having men understand the idea of, you know, fertility can be their issue as well. It's not just the woman who mm-hmm. is who can be barren, um, but also taking away the shame from that, you know, um, that these are completely natural things and there are other ways to go about it. But you can never explore the other ways until you actually discuss them and remove away from, you know, being quiet or secretive or just blaming certain people. So, yeah, I definitely I like what you've said there. Um, and yeah, just maybe to add that, like, the last thing you said about how they are normal, they actually affect a lot more people than we think, right? Mm. So I'd, I'll, I'll talk about fertility, the example that you gave. Like I, I I now know so many people that are struggling with their fertility, but they, they and, and they're not necessarily open about it. It's something that's spoken about in secret, but 
by virtue of my networks, I'm looking around and I'm like, okay, there's at least five people within my immediate circle that are trying to have a baby but are struggling. Mm. Surely this is something we should talk about. Surely this is something we should be able to support each other about. Um, Like you said, it's not the woman's problem all the time. You know, we should be able to talk to our men freely and and them not feeling emasculated by it. And I think that that's a whole other story, emasculation, ego, and, you know, health being something that men also don't prioritize because Mm -hmm. it's the opposite of how they are raised. Um, Whereas, like you said, as women, we are raised to be afraid, to be careful, to care for things, whereas for them, it's you're strong, you're tough. And so how, how do we change something that was in them from the way they were raised now you're dealing with a 25-year-old man who strongly believes this in his mind. How are you going to change that? Part about how we're raised as well, you've, you've really, that's, that hits the nail on the head because um, men are just raised to believe that they are the quote-unquote prize. They are not responsible mm-hmm. for much. Um, but especially as far as reproductive health is concerned, even if you do find yourself in a situation as a man, I imagine, where you have contracted an STI, um, I think the blame shifting goes immediately. They don't look into, I, I don't think they're encouraged to look inwardly. Um, whereas with the woman, it's like the first thing you think is, what did I do? Who did I sleep with? Mm-hmm. So I think that imbalance definitely would need to be addressed on on a more cultural level. And I think as well, just the way we think about, I think we've really gendered the healthcare sector where the most easily accessible healthcare is like, nurses and clinicians and we associate the more doctor roles with males still although that is changing um but the mm-hmm. nurse roles the grassroots roles are really assigned to women um yeah. and it's just assumed that only a woman could be a nurse and you'll find at the clinic um that's most accessible to more remote areas in the country a majority of those healthcare providers are women simply because that's just how we're socialized to think so i think also just shaking up those tables and challenging the norms that we have in the healthcare sector about the role men play and the role women play would also be really important all right so um my final question is under you know the current economic circumstances what do you think is the biggest impediment to accessing reproductive health services for young people in zimbabwe is it simply no knowledge or is it there's no money or Uh, you know, young people don't have jobs or the fact that, you know, education, the education system right now is in quite a precarious position. Uh, Well, it has been for a long time, but the pandemic hasn't helped at all. But I imagine if since 2008, for example, people have been struggling to go to school or not getting, you know, their qualifications in good time or the education system is just a bit shambolic. That's just two aspects, money and education that make it difficult. But in your view, what do you think is the biggest impediment to accessing this healthcare? If I could list problems, I would have loads, but you've asked me for the biggest. <laughs> um, That's what you think is the uh, biggest. I think it's the availability of services. Mm-hmm. And I think that that covers quite a lot of things. A young person in Zimbabwe cannot access an STI test in our setting. Well, any well, most people in this country can't access an STI test just because you can't get it in a in a government facility. Um, if you wanted to get it, you would have to um, go to a private doctor and pay whatever US dollars to see that private doctor. 
and then go and pay, you know, a laboratory to, to, to get the test. But before we even get that, I think it's access. The, the, the services for young people are not available in, um, in our setting. Um, the services that are not that are available are not tailored for young people. They are not youth friendly. They're not packaged in a way that a young person can walk into that service and access the service. Um, the services that are there also cost money and it's money that young people don't have um, for all the reasons that you've listed. Young people are not in uh, most young people are not employed. They don't actually have an income. If there is a cost barrier to them accessing any reproductive health service, it might as well not be there. And I'll give a very basic example of contraception. If a young person wants to get family planning pills, they have to pay to, mm. to, to go to the clinic and get that service. If I am a 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 year old without a job, without an income, I cannot access that service. So that service might as well not be there for me. And the same thing applies to menstrual hygiene products. Pads cost a minimum of a dollar. If I am a young person, I am not employed. I do receive my menstrual cycle every month. I have no income. That, that product might as well not be there. So there is no access um, at the moment for all of the reasons that I've just listed. That actually, yeah, makes a lot of sense. I think I, accessing the services is important um, to my, from my knowledge and experience. I think that only as a young person, the closest thing to reproductive health information I ever got was from Childline. This is just growing up in Zimbabwe, but just being told of the things that shouldn't be happening. Perhaps in social mm -hmm. studies, you learn a little bit about like your menstrual cycle and all of that good stuff. But then as an adult, what I notice about a lot of reproductive health services, they're coated in family planning. And if you're not necessarily family planning, it's like, okay, so that doesn't involve me, but what am I supposed to do? So I yeah. know of late in the last, I guess, 10 years, there's been just a shift towards, you know, getting um, HPV screenings for women, um, STI testing, but it's not everywhere and those services are not readily accessible. I remember seeing a couple of a uh, couple of years ago, I think it was two or three years ago, a Twitter thread about how someone went to the New Start Center to get quite possibly the most affordable HPV screening that you could get in Zimbabwe at the time. Um, mm -hmm. And how it was things like there was no power every day that she went. So she couldn't get the necessary, I think it's an ultrasound or something. Um, couldn't mm -hmm. get the ultrasound, so that was kind of like, okay, well, I kind of gave up going because it was a waste of resources, the money for trans, the cost of transport, the time you take off, all of those kinds of things because of no service delivery then impacts accessing this kind of healthcare when it's when the ambition is to try to make it as accessible as possible. There are things that are even out of the healthcare provider's control that make it really hard to for young people to access these things. So if you have that one day off or that one time, you know, you can ha you have a little bit of money to do something. If something else was to come up in a desperate situation, you know, you are going to, I don't know, maybe pay school fees or maybe buy food with that money that you were going to use to access the affordable reproductive health system. So I think those are things that we definitely need to think about. But also what you said is very true. The way these services are presented is not youth friendly at all. 
um, it really makes it seem as if it's only a certain kind of person who would be acceptable to access these resources. And if you don't fit into that category, this is not for you. And that leads to people suffering in silence. Yes, there's a lot that needs to be done. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it starts from, like you said, when you're young, it's information. But once you have the information also, then we talk about the access. And, and once I have the information, my community or the society around me doesn't necessarily have that information. And that can act as a barrier for me as well. And then there are, you know, structural things. So we haven't even spoken about this yet, yeah. but there's issues like consent, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're um, younger than a certain age, you need parental consent to access sexual and reproductive health services. But what we do know from the data is that, you know, younger children or adolescents are engaging in sexual activity. They come to our sites asking us for HIV tests, asking us for contraception, but we can't give them without consent. That's another barrier. There's so many things working against. I like to think of myself as a young person <laughs> working <laughs> against us. But yeah, I think it's 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 one thing at a time. And I think mm-hmm. we started the conversation a lot of people are are noticing the importance of this um, and trying to work at different ways to address this. Uh, like I said before, it will take time, but it's it's one thing, tackling one thing at a time to get where we need to go. No, most definitely. No, I, I love that response. Thank you so, so, so much, Chido, for joining us. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. And I really appreciate the work you're doing in our country. The information you do share on social media is really helpful. And I have attempted to read one of your papers as a (laughs) wannabe economist who likes looking at data as well. And um, we're getting there. Like, it'll make Mm -hmm. sense. It'll make it's it's making sense. So, yeah. But thank you so much. Well, that's encouraging. At least there's social media stuff that you can consume. Um, And hopefully one day you'll finish a paper and enjoy it. (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure. It's enjoyable. It definitely is. It just takes a little bit longer than, you know, it's not light reading. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Thank you so much. No, thank you so much. And that is the episode. A huge, huge thank you and shout out once again to my amazing guest, Dr. Chido. Um, thank you for so, so much for coming on this platform and also for being so candid and honest about your personal and professional experiences. I really appreciated it. And I'm sure anyone who's listening got so much value out of that too. So thank you. And thank you, the listener, for tuning in and your continued support and patience with me as we get back on a regular publishing schedule i really appreciate it everyone who has supported and donated on the paypal um i'm just i'm so appreciative of the continued support of this platform that continues to grow from strength to strength every week so thank you so much please do not forget to follow the podcast on social media at in this economy podcast on instagram and follow me your host at kimya jeka on twitter um and yeah i really love hearing your feedback i really love your engagement so uh dms are always open the whole nine i think by now yeah that's the that's the whole story (laughs) all right and with that i guess i will see you next week